Hello and welcome back to The Near Futurist, the podcast I've been running for almost five years now. We cover both the business and consumer worlds, and as always, I'll welcome feedback and input on the LinkedIn page. Just search for Guy Clapperton and Near Futurist and you'll find it. Before I introduce this month's guest, though, here's a word from my sponsor. Well, once again, it's not really a sponsor. It's more me plugging my media training operation. clients want to sound as confident, clear, and fluent in media interviews as the people in this podcast? Of course you do. My team and I can help. Drop my assistant, Lindsay, that's lindsay at clapperton.co.uk, a note, and she'll set us a time for an initial chat. Or go to the website at clapperton.co.uk, two Ps, to find out more. Now, back to the podcast. But you aren't here to listen to my adverts. What you want to hear is my guest. You'll have heard a lot about artificial intelligence or AI in recent times. It's going to make our lives easier. It's going to take our jobs. It's going to make us all live longer. It'll kill us all by the end of the decade. I've spent quite a lot of time on Twitter. You can probably tell. But somewhere in there, there's got to be some grains of some truth, or at least in the middle of compromising with that between all those views. A lot of industry bodies are concerned about the impact of AI, and my guest is involved. She is Visiting Cybersecurity and Privacy Executive Fellow at Pamplin Business School, Virginia Tech. She helps global organizations with their privacy by design programs and the privacy and ethical challenges related to artificial intelligence and big data. She was awarded Woman of the Year 2019 in the Cybersecurity Awards. She is Global Chief Privacy Officer at Wipro, that'll be in her spare time, and is co-founder of the Women Leading in AI Network. She is Ivana Bartoletti. Ivana, welcome. Thank you. Really good to be here with you. Well, it's, it's great to have you. Let's start with the basics. So going back to the whole women in IT thing or women in um, AI, I've been writing the women in IT story since about 1989 when I started as a journalist. I was rather hoping it was no longer going to be a thing by, say, 2023. Why are we still at the stage where we still need specific groups? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question. And thank you so much for supporting this and for writing about this for, for, for such a long time. I mean, it's brilliant. And yes, I agree. We shouldn't be where we're still now. We still have too few women uh, programming, coding. Um, we still are in a world where if I ask ChatGPT, for example, to tell me a story about a boy and a girl who are friends, and um, they are, they've been friends since they were kids and they're deciding what to do for university. So I said to Judge GPT, tell me a story about it. Judge GPT responded and said, once upon a time, there were two good friends, a boy and a girl. They had been friends forever. They're deciding where to go to university. And the boy says, I want to study engineering. And the girl says, I want to study art. And guess what it adds? It says, I want to study art because I do not understand about numbers. So we're still in these situations. I mean, a lot has changed. A lot of it has improved. And many companies, many organizations, many institutions are very well aware that we need more diversity, more women from every background in coding, in programming, and they're driving programs to change this. Um, but we need really things to speed up because we can't wait for um, another generation to come. We really need things to change and change quickly. 
absolutely. And that, that little uh, story that Chad GPT wrote for you has all sorts of my hackles rising, apart from anything my daughter is studying to uh, uh, become an opera singer. But it's not because she's bad at maths, it's because she's passionate about opera. You know, it's just absolutely. That the totally. whole, oh, let, let's, we, we could go down a whole rat hole there. I think we're, we're probably in some agreement. But, but it does outline that a lot of the bias is unintentional. Uh, in other industries, for example, I was reading a while ago that the design of a cockpit at an aircraft is designed around the male body, and the same has been true of spacesuits. I'm just wondering what unconscious biases people who perhaps are recruiting or building their own businesses need to look for in the IT industry. Bias is what exactly you described, is when you make a choice, and most of the time you make it in an unconscious way. And you mentioned things like, for example, um, in the aerospace industry, how things have built in a certain way. But also, if you think one area that has always fascinated me is the area of, of medicine. And that is because things like heart attacks and generally heart diseases, they're not really studied about women. So a lot of women, when they go to a doctor and they say, I have a problem, I feel, normally they've been told, well, it's stress. But sometimes it's not stress. Sometimes it's just something that hasn't particularly been studied because a lot of the data being collected over the decades has been around men. And we have seen examples of this translated into technology. Joy Bulamvini, in her amazing film, Coded Bias, really talks about facial recognition tools that fail to recognize black skin. And it's not just facial recognition, it's also, for example, the detention detection of, of skin cancer um, that often fails to recognize black skin. So the reason why I'm saying all this is because a lot of the bias emerges from data and data is not neutral, data is a picture of society. So obviously, if you take this data, feed it into a machine, an algorithm, then what happens is that you are coding the world of today with all the inequalities and everything into a system that makes decisions, that makes decisions about tomorrow, that makes predictions, that influences public policy, that defines whether you've got access to something or not, and also something that defines what you see when you browse the internet. And uh, so to an extent, act as a gateway to the world as it is for, for, for everybody. So this is what we're concerned about. So we're concerned about that bias when it gets coded into the systems that sometimes is very difficult to identify. But it's not just the data, right? It's also the parameters that you choose. Um, you can identify, for example, what you considered, considered to be good or to be bad, and that's never neutral. So what is really important, especially in the IT industry, is to make sure that when these systems are created, when the data is ingested into these machines, that we have a very diverse workforce that can identify potential bias. They can say, hey, if you do this, if you choose this parameter, if you don't massage the data in a certain way, you may be producing bias. You may be producing something maybe unwillingly, not because you want to, but simply because you're not checking enough, simply because you're not thinking longer term. So this is where it's really important to be aware of all this. In recruitment, this is crucial because when a lot of systems now they're used in, in, in artificial intelligence, a lot of AI systems are used in recruitment to uh, rule out people, to decide whether somebody's got an interview or not, to look at their performance in a job place. Again, this is where bias can become very dangerous. Um, not just because 
there that bias would be unethical not just because it would be unfair it could potentially even breach discrimination law but also because it wouldn't let you hire the best talent and that is very detrimental to to productivity to create the best performing organizations so we we have to be careful i think with these systems um because once the systems code bias and inequalities then they become much more difficult to understand and also it becomes also much more difficult for people to say hey you are discriminating me because a lot of these systems they are used in ways that are not particularly transparent and a lot of these systems can't even be completely understood by the people using them there's a lot in that. Uh, I, I was reading a book recently by uh, Matthew Syed, uh, in which he was uh, he makes the very good point that uh, if you just hire people like yourself, even if you think it's good to have like-minded people around you, you can end up not seeing an awful lot because you only have the one perspective. It's an excellent book called uh, Revel Ideas. I'd recommend it to anybody. We are heading towards the inputs that you have to put into uh, AI to actually make it work. And people of either gender are nervous of artificial intelligence in general, should they be and why? I am not in the sense that I quite like them. Um, there, there's a lot that I like and there's a lot of the use. It's quite fascinating to have, for example, the, the sort of the splash of generative AI. I mean, of course, there's been a lot of hype in the media. There's a lot of um, glamour around these technologies. But I actually find um, some of it really interesting. If I look at it through the prism, for example, of productivity, I find fascinating how you can automate a lot of the tasks and how you can find artificial intelligence to support you in your everyday work. And I also find that this is and how you can train a, a generative AI tool on your enterprise data and, and you can simplify a lot of the processes that you have and you can get your employees and people to focus on, on other things and be checkers rather than doers in, in in the more traditional sense, you know, and, and having to do a lot of repetitive tasks. All that I find quite interesting. So long as I see this through the prism of productivity, which to me is very important because I like the idea that I can that a lot of people can be assisted, not replaced, but assisted in, in, in what they do. I like having access to human knowledge to an extent. Um, I like the potential of some generative AI tools, for example, to safeguard some of the areas that can be lost, like some language or some um, how you can train AI system to something that is very dear to, to you and specifically maybe even to some communities. So I, there is something very positive about the AI and the transformation of power that AI has. So if you want my honest opinion, or I am not terrified as many. I know what the risks are and I want to tackle those risks. And I actually, when I hear people talking about artificial intelligence, risk of um, destroying the whole of humanity, for example, the existential threat that AI is posing, I actually find that a little bit misleading because it creates something mythical and myst mystic around artificial intelligence. It makes it sound some sort of something magic. As in reality, these tools are created by humans. Every AI tool is a bundle of data, which is not neutral, parameters, which, has, which are chosen by human beings, people, who are the people creating and making these tools. So 
it, every single artificial intelligence artifact is embedded into the world and is, many people say correctly, is a sociotechnical tool. And being a sociotechnical tool means that the risks are the risks that we are talking about, bias, um, disinformation, online manipulate, manipulation, the fact that you can create deep fakes of great speed and therefore there is indeed a risk for our democratic viability. But these risks are manageable and are not new. Many people have been talking about these risks for many, many, many years. So sometimes I feel that when I hear these people talking about, oh, AI is going to destroy us all, I feel, well, actually, yes, I can't exclude that, of course, because who knows about the capabilities of AI in the future. But you are distracting us from the sort of the tasks that we have right now in front of us, which are the task of creating and implementing, uh, creating new laws like we're doing in, in many countries, uh, many strategies, um, but also the task to implement existing legislation, for example, around privacy, data protection, um, human rights, non-discrimination, liability, copyright. I mean, I feel that a lot of this very dramatic calls for and, 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 and people saying, you know, we are going to, we are heading towards the end of humanity. I feel that are a little bit misleading and they create sort of this magic and, and around artificial intelligence that I think is exactly the opposite of what is needed right now. So, on to Gadget of the Month. This time I'm looking at a new desktop set, in other words, mouse and keyboard, from Logitech. That's the Wave Keyboard and the Lift Mouse. These are really good if you're just starting out, but if, like me, you have 40 years of two-fingered typing behind you, they're going to be quite an adjustment. Now, the keyboard is based on the ergonomic designs that came in during the 1990s, for example. So, you don't need to move your fingers or hands around so much if you're a touch typist. Now, for those of us who never learned properly, bit of a confession there, but have survived decades as a journalist, it's not so easy. The hands move into the position we're used to, and the keys just aren't there. I'd have to confess, this is mostly a problem for people like me rather than people who've had any real training in typing. For them, that and the cushion for the wrists is going to make this a lot easier. The mouse is also difficult, but this time it's going to be the same for everybody, but I strongly suspect worth persevering. You might have noticed, or you'll see it once I point out, that typically our hands adopt a sort of claw position when we use mice. Now, how much more natural would it feel to adopt a handshake position? That's basically what the lift mouse does. The controls are mostly vertical, and if you haven't used a mouse before, it's going to be a lot more comfortable. It comes with a Bluetooth dongle, but my system didn't need it. Its upright design means it's quite tall, so I've managed to knock it across the desk a number of times. I'm clever like that. Battery life appears impressive on both of these models, and as long as you're a touch typist to begin with, you're likely to be a lot more comfortable over a period of time. I'll probably stick with what I know, but that might not be all that clever as I get older. So expect to pay just under £70 for the mouse, and just over that for the keyboard. Now, back to the podcast. You've mentioned the 
uh, prospect of legislation. You've mentioned the prospect of doing it country by country. And I'm sure we can get the reasonable people to regulate. Um, but without wishing to sound um, prejudicial towards any other cultures other than my own, um, the Chinese, for example, are not noted for uh, respecting copyright. They, they will just go ahead and print books. It's part of their culture, whether they own them or not. Mr. Putin is a law unto himself, it seems to me. There's a whole bunch of other states who um, we can't actually stand as the West, and I'm sure who would feel exactly the same about us and make the same arguments. But how can you regulate internationally? Once it's in the ether, it actually transcends national boundaries. And, uh, you know, are these, um, you know, is it actually possible to reg- regulate AI in any meaningful way? Yeah, I mean, this is not an easy question, right? And uh, and I agree with you on what you said. In, uh, we live in very uncertain times, right? So it's it's not an easy task. So first of all, I mean, what does it mean to regulate AI, right? So we regulate the, the behavior of people around artificial intelligence. So for example, we already have legislation that applies to AI. Privacy, non-discrimination law, although imperfect, you know, they do to an extent apply to artificial intelligence. And this is why, for example, the FTC in the US, they've just launched a massive investigation into OpenAI, saying, hey, where is the data coming from? Um, where there is no transparency around what is out there. So actually, the US has been quite firm in protecting consumers' rights through the FTC and, and, uh, and on, for example, um, this generative AI tools. China is strongly regulated generative AI tools. As you alluded, you know, China, one of the reasons why perhaps China is, is, is so concerned about generative AI tools is because of the potential risk of disinformation and the potential threat that they could feel to, to the nature of, of the, the, the country that they have. And as you, you, you will have seen, for example, when, when generative AI arrived and ChatGPT arrived in, in, in Europe, went to Europe, the Italian regulator said, Hey, you've got to stop processing the data of, of, uh, of Italian citizens. But similar inquiries were made by, by the Irish regulator, by the French regulator, by, and the information commission in the UK was quite firm in saying, we will take a look, you know, we will, um, make sure that, um, we look into this generative AI tools and, and how they, they're complying with data privacy laws. Why am I saying this? Because to an extent, AI is already regulated. So we've got to be careful in, when we say AI needs regulation, you know, because it, it, again, it's a way to say, well, if it needs regulation, that means that we can breach, we, we, we can breach the existing ones. Um, there is a lot of law and there is a lot of legislation that already applies to AI systems. And now, of course, if someone wants to be a, uh, break that law, they will break the law. That's that's understood. Exactly. There is a, a forthcoming uh, EU Act, um, I, be, I believe, and I believe you're part of the advisory body that's yeah. uh, feeding into that. Could you tell us what's likely to be in the Act and what, um, uh, and indeed, how it will affect non-EU members? I mean, I, I'm from the UK, so everybody I know lives in a country that has actually taken the decision to leave the EU. Yeah, I mean, story, it's, a, it's it's an, it's a, it's it's an int- it's interesting because think about Europe. You no, know, Europe has often regulated. Think about GDPR. Europe was the first one to have some overarching and um, so technology neutral but um, privacy legislation. And um, so Europe was the first one. So one of the things that Europe has done, in uh, especially because of the international competition, is is been around 
imposing regulation that other countries will have to adhere to because Europe is a large market, right? So that is, is a strategy. Some some people call it the Brussels effect, which is the idea that, of course, you, um, because you have such a market with 27 countries now, then and, and democratic processes to, 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 um, to implement laws, that means that these laws have a massive impact. Now, the European AI Act is product, um, is product neutral. What it says is, um, AI has got a different levels of risk if um, some products are completely banned because they uh, they don't match the the values underpinning the, the, the European Union. So, for example, the social scoring method that is is very much uh, well alive in in China that is not um, allowed in the EU. But other systems, they may be high risk, such as systems that have a huge impact on you. So if you if you use an AI to define whether you have a access to a mortgage or whether you use an AI to, to within the human resources of work context, that is that may substantially infringe upon your civil liberties and therefore that systems is is high risk and high risk systems they need to have more controls wrapped around them so it's very much of a sort of overarching legislation twice in the us the approach is much more sectorial so you have the healthcare sector then you have the financial se- sector and your consumer sector so you have the ftc operating in that space. So although both the US and the EU have a very much of a risk-based approach. Now, can I just say something really, really, that I find really interesting and and related to what you were saying earlier. What I find really interesting is what is happening between Europe, the UK and and the US. As you mentioned, sort of like-minded countries. So you have Europe and the US, they have the Trade Technology Council, which is this tool that they've established to look at technology and, and align from a value based and on, on technology. And one of the recent outputs has been a taxonomy or definitions around AI. Now words are very important, right? And and they mean a lot. So defining the, the, the words, the taxonomy, the vo- joint vocabulary of AI has come out of the Trade Technology Council. And this this is really important. The idea that that these countries can work together to really um, and call for other countries to work with them on on uh, and human rights based AI for, for progress and for, for humanity. The UK is playing a very important role in my view because the idea of calling a summit in, in the UK in September, October to, to look at all this, how we can bring like-minded countries together, um, it's, um, it, it's a very important step. And just a few weeks ago in the, uh, the UN, and the UN General Secretary announced that they want um, to create an agency to a very similar to the Atomic Agency. Um, to although the UN Secretary doesn't have the power itself, but these 193 member states may have the power to create an agency, a global agency, and the, U- the UK played a big part in championing this idea of an agency that can have. Um, the power to to look at what countries are doing. They can be um, and create and foster best practices for AI uh, for good, AI for humanity, the progress of humanity. Now, whether that is that kind of atomic agency is the best model that we need to apply, that's a completely different matter. But what I wanted to say is that the UK is playing an important part and um, and one that we absolutely need, which is really to to say we need to advocate. Um, for artificial intelligence, for the good use of artificial intelligence. And we need to bring together countries that have a similar approach 
and make sure that we cooperate and, and work together moving forward. It does strike me that uh, the recent progress of AI, mostly under the guise of chat GPT, just because that hit the headlines more than anything else, has taken an awful lot of people by surprise. Do you have any thoughts about uh, why that is? Because my experience is that AI has been bubbling away underneath the surface for an awfully long time. We might have called it uh, robotics in some stage. We might have called it uh, machine learning. Uh, but we now call it AI. Well, we're just calling everything AI, whether it's robotics, machine learning, or whatever it is. But why are we so surprised by it suddenly? And I think the surprise is that it's in it's at hit people's homes, so everybody can now have access to it. So, I mean, the fact that you have a hundred million people who use ChatGPT and similar tools is quite um, is quite a big thing. I feel that I mean that is the big difference. Everybody can have access to these tools, and 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 that is the the good thing, but it's also dangerous thing because if you're an organization, for example, and you are using these tools. Of course, you want to use these tools, and you can do it different ways. But you you want um, you want your employees to, and, and to familiarize with these tools. And the same, um, you know, you want young people to familiarize because that's that's the world we live in. But the fact that so many non-technical people have access to these technologies, it's it's uh, it's problematic, you know, because we have seen a lot of people using these technologies and and then relying on them as if. They were saying the truth, yeah. And sometimes these tools um, hallucinate, and we've even seen lawyers. We've also seen a lawyer, for example, using an answer coming from ChatGPT in a court case, and and the cases that ChatGPT had come through, they had created, they were completely made up, and so that was in in an actual court case. And uh, of course, that was sort of lawyers shouldn't be doing this because obviously they should know better, and then that AI can. ChatGPT can uh, um, make up stuff, computationally make up stuff. Uh, but at the same time, what I wanted to say is that the hype around these tools has been so big that you can't blame people if they've been blindly using them because the hype has been like really very big in the newspapers and, and everywhere in the news. I feel that everybody's got access now. And, and that is, uh, for example, you can create videos, how quickly you can create images, how quickly you can train us. It's, it's incredible, the potential. And that, of course, has caused a lot of issues in schools, in academia. I've uh, just recently seen a um, statement put out by the Russell Group in the UK, which I find very good, where basically universities, is, although at the beginning they were trying to find every possible way to ban the use of these tools from universities, now they are finding a more balanced approach in saying we can't ban these tools completely because obviously uh, our young people will work with them moving forward. So how do we work with them? How do we let them use them in which way? How do we teach them how to use them? Um, so it's been a big surprise for a lot of people. The, that's not the tool in itself, I find, but the availability and how everybody can can use them. That has been, I think, a big thing for, for everybody. I think that's right. One thing I would disagree with you slightly, though, you're saying you can't blame people for thinking it's going to do everything. You can blame the people who uh, said that, uh, who claimed that uh, it was doing work that was theirs when it was no such thing. They just asked AI to do it. That is plagiarism. That is cheating. And it always has been. It's a deliberate act. I think that's, uh, yeah, we, we can hold people responsible for that. Um, 
You mentioned young people, which is very, very important. My generation, I'm in my late 50s, are often called digital immigrants because we're not digital natives. We weren't brought up native with uh, this digital technology. It might be within our grasp. We might be fluent, but we're never going to be uh, the natives as such. We didn't have it in our childhood. Do you think the young people are now going to be going through the same thing with AI? So, you know, having to learn it almost as a, a foreign language. I think it's true. And uh, I think everybody will use the systems according to different levels. And surely younger generation will, uh, will, be, will be using them to the full capabilities compared to what you and I may be using them. But I also feel that um, AI is already underpinning a lot of what we do and, and it's already there. So if you think about all the applications that we use and what I find a little bit disconcerting is the fact that our younger generation, they don't feel that they fully know how much AI is present already, how much it drives, for example, the adverts that they see online or how much it could be behind a recruitment process they, they go through. And so whilst it's really important that they understand how they can use their tools, I would also want them to understand how they can protect themselves from these tools because and how they can exercise their digital citizenship in the way that they do that in the real world you know and and i don't think we're there in any way or form and but you can't blame them you know you still have a lot of parents who post photos of their kids on facebook and you you know and 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 we know that is dangerous you know we know that as a recent advert from from uh uh, Deutsche Telekom, which was um, broadcasted everywhere in the world, which I thought was brilliant, you know, protecting young people' digital privacy, because these photos that go online and for families and for a lot of people, this these are memories and wonderful things. But for others, these people are data, and that can be used to to train systems to do. So I think this sort of digital awareness uh, is not present yet, and and yet we have to tell young people that they the the dangers of the potential dangers all the benefits they will experience the convenience you know we grew up in a world and and, i mean i didn't grow up in it but i grew accustomed to a world of convenience or online shopping or amazon or or, um our younger generation they already experienced all of that and if anything they may want to return something different to, to experience different kind of emotions but but it, what worries me is, is are we telling them what are the, the darker side of this? I mean, what is, what is to experience a world where, for example, because we get targeted with different information where we may not be able to share a common knowledge of the truth because we don't, we see things in such a different way because of micro-targeting. So that was, that is a little bit, uh, there's something that, can, that keeps me awake, you know, in terms of especially having sort of, children it's like how do you who is going to teach them and how uh, of course we can as, as parents but ultimately there's more that needs to be done as a society in terms of under teaching the digital citizenship citizenship understanding of what the, or the potential harms it's important for, for for younger people to to learn about all of this and also important for their parents, as you say, if they're the ones who are doing uh, a lot of the teaching. I think it's uh, it, it, it's incumbent on all of us to yeah. um, to, to uh, educate ourselves around uh, the digital world and the AI world about uh, what the risks may be. There are always going to be risks in, in terms of everything. 
we are running up against time, I'm afraid, which is um, a shame because I'm really enjoying this conversation. Uh, but uh, could we perhaps finish by, if you could tell me uh, whereabouts people can find out more about yourself and your work? Yeah, sure. So I've um, so my website is the easiest way. I've just I've recently published a study for the Council of Europe on uh, with um, another academic with an academic on discrimination and the impact on AI on gender. So, um, but I published everything on my website. So there is uh, find information about me. And uh, what is your website address? Please? Oh, sorry. Yes, good question. It's ivanabartoletti.co.uk. That's great, Ivana Bartoletti. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. This has been The Near Futurist, a Clapperton Media production, and I've been Guy Clapperton. See you in a month.